Hello and welcome to The Energy Gang, a discussion show where we're going to be talking again about the ever-deepening energy crisis. I'm Ed Crooks. At a time when much of Europe has been sweltering in record temperatures, it feels like a bit of cognitive dissonance to be worrying about winter. But these are very worrying times for Europeans because of deep uncertainty of what will happen to imports of Russian gas, which are critical for keeping the lights on and keeping people warm in their homes. And meanwhile, in the US, we appear to have reached a defining moment in the evolution of climate policy. To discuss these topics, it's my great pleasure to welcome back one of our regular contributors, Amy Myers-Jaffe, who's the Managing Director of the Climate Policy Lab at the Fletcher School of Government at Tufts University. Hi, Amy. How are you? How have you been since we saw each other last? I'm great, Ed. It's been a very busy summer. We had our first ever Climate Policy Summer Academy with the 40 attendees from governments around the world. Fantastic. And what kind of things are you doing there? We do comparative evaluation of climate policy together, compare decarbonization models, and uh, talked a lot about carbon pricing, which was a hot topic for the Academy this year. Yeah, sounds very interesting and a great time, obviously, to be doing that. A lot to talk about, I'm sure. Also today, it's my very great pleasure to welcome a new voice to the Energy Gang. We have Vicky Bailey who's the founder of Anderson Stratton Enterprises, which is a consulting firm. And she's also chairman of the board of the United States Energy Association, which is a nonprofit group that works to promote energy development in the US and around the world. Vicky, thank you very much for joining us today. Yes, good to be with you, Ed and Amy, and glad to, to join you. You've had an amazingly distinguished career in the energy industry. I was reading through your CV the other day and looking at what you've been doing in government as a regulator in the private sector. Just perhaps for the benefit of listeners who might not know you, can you tell us a little bit about uh, your career in energy? How did you get into energy in the first place and uh, how have you pursued the career path you've taken? Yes, Ed, it has been an exciting uh, career path for me and I, I probably uh, can't keep a job. That might be the, the, the indication <laughs> here and, and I'm formally honorable. But outside of that, I'm from the, the great state of Indiana, and that's where I first went on the Indiana Utility Regulatory Commission. And from there, things took off. I was fortunate enough to be able to come to, to uh, well, I was there as a commissioner for six, seven years. Then I came to D.C., appointed to the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission, I was there for six or seven years. And we had a, the case that people know me for and being an architect of is Order 888 and 889, which was kind of the wholesale open access and deregulation pathway. And uh, uh, so that was an exciting time uh, for me. Then after that, I went back to head up a Synergy PSI back in Indiana, came, uh, then was appointed to the Department of Energy and came to be Assistant Secretary for Domestic Policy and International Affairs, uh, and then uh, left there and actually started uh, my own entrepreneurial business um, and uh now sitting on different corporate boards. Well, we're very uh, honoured to have you with us here today. I want to start off by talking about the biggest story in energy right now, of course, which is the energy crisis, and in particular, the energy crisis in Europe. When you look back at the history of this, it's really been the case that for the past 50 years plus, really since the 1960s, Russia has been a perpetually regular, reliable energy supplier to Western Europe. And that was true through the Cold War, breakup of the Soviet Union, the rise of President Vladimir Putin. Through all of that, oil and gas continued to flow westwards into Europe. And as a result of that, Europe became heavily dependent on Russian energy, and in particular, on Russian gas. What's happened since Russia's invasion of Ukraine in February is that those previously reliable supplies have been under threat. In particular, there's huge concern over gas supplies. Gas supplies through the vital Nord Stream pipeline from Russia to Germany were interrupted for 10 days earlier this month. And although they've restarted since then, it's clear they could be stopped again at any moment. And actually, just in the last couple of hours, we've had a, a statement from Gazprom suggesting that they're going to be reducing supplies on that pipeline. So not cutting them off altogether, but definitely kind of uh, tightening the screws a bit on Europe. That's causing huge concern in Europe. We've had, for instance, Ursula von der Leyen, who's the president of the European Commission. She's warned Europeans that they need to be ready for Putin to turn off the taps altogether. She said, Russia is blackmailing us. Russia is using energy as a weapon. And the impact of that on Europeans could be that they're going to have to ration gas over the winter. European Commission has proposed a 15% cut in consumption of gas. 
basically sort of pitching this to people as saying, we're proposing this to you at the moment as a voluntary thing. We would like you to turn down your gas consumption voluntarily. But if you don't do it voluntarily, it's going to have to become compulsory because we have no alternatives. There just won't be enough gas to go around. So clearly, with winter approaching, it's a very, very concerning situation in Europe, as I say. So Vicky, perhaps to bring you in first on this, Ursula von der Leyen talking about Russia using energy as a weapon. Do you think that's what's going on? And, and how concerned do you think Europeans should be about the prospect of this winter where Russia may be turning off the taps? You know, I think for me, and in answering the, this question, you know, it's not so much for me to, to lean into what President Putin may be doing or his actions or trying to interpret his actions. But I think what she was trying to convey is a sense of urgency. You know, we, we have a race against time, uh, it seems to be, and prepare for uh, the reality and uncertainty of a harsh winter. And uh, she's trying to, to convey that to the Europeans. This is a geopolitical, it's an energy crisis, a geopolitical, but it's a humanitarian crisis uh, in my mind. What can be done? What can be done in the time frame that we have? This impacts everything from the standpoint of what we've tried to do for the energy transition. Uh, the areas that we have said we wanted to increase, renewables and solar, all of all the things we said we wanted to do, this impacts that if we start to reduce gas flows from Nord Stream and other areas where supply may be disruptive. So that's, that's the concern for me and from what I've always been focused on, which is access to energy and the importance of that, whether you're rationing or returning to coal or uh, there, there's thoughts of service agreements with other, with other countries, other, other entities, there's a lot to pursue here. So you have options, but uh, it, there's a sense of urgency that I think has to be brought forward. And what do you think of Europe's response so far? Do you think Europe has been responding with the necessary urgency? Are they doing the right things? They, this has been the forward motion for some time from the standpoint of energy transition and where they want to go. Always it's the issue of, from the standpoint of, can you get the scale that you need from the options we have? And I think that's the, the good thing about now. We have, we have options. We have technological options. Uh, we you know, we hear hear them talking. There are other countries, and we'll set Germany aside, but other countries that are talking about increased nuclear projects. But those are things that take some time to to come on board. So they have to do things in the immediate future. And those are the things that we're talking about, be it reducing usage 15 percent. Uh, that, that's what I've heard. I mean, these are the things that you can do in the immediate future. And I think that's what they're trying to focus on. Uh, because this can be a very protracted hardship uh, as we go forward. So, Amy, what do you think? What do you think about the European response? Are they doing the right things? Well, I think that, you know, they've, they're doing uh, the right things. Already we're seeing some news reports that maybe Germany, realizing the severity of the situation, is thinking about whether it should put back on nuclear plants that were closed ahead of the crisis, now realizing maybe that was... Uh, not going to be possible. Um, and of course, there's been this push to coal, and there's been this sort of reorganization of uh, gas that's being purchased in the form of liquefied natural gas, LNG. Sadly, today in the market, the talk was that China and some of the other buyers of LNG are also nervous about the winter and the possibility of what happens uh, in this conflict. And so they're out trying to outbid um, Europe for the LNG. So we're really getting to a point where I do think that uh, demand restrictions or ways of shedding demand are going to be more important at this point than just assuming you're going to be able to pick up extra gas from some other location. But I, I do think that uh, the Russians have some constraints that don't really get talked about, one of which is everybody thinks that Russia can just shift its natural gas to China and India the way they shifted their oil. But oil is very fungibly able to go on a tanker and go anywhere in the world. And the Siberian natural gas is pretty much stuck uh, with these pipelines to Europe in good measure. I mean, there's some amount can go to China, but it's limited. And so Gazprom could be under a tremendous financial pressure. 
if it turns out to be seen as an unreliable supplier and it loses its customer base in Europe more permanently, um, it's going to take it 10 years to be able to take that Siberian gas and send it somewhere else to a new pipeline. And that's something the Russians have to keep in mind. Yeah, no, I do think that's a fantastic point. And we're just talking about dependency and dependency cuts both ways. Europe's dependent on Russian gas. Russia was dependent on Europe as a market for selling its gas. So when Russia cuts off gas supplies to Europe, that's not a costless thing for Russia to do. Sorry, Vicky, you were going to say something. No, I was just uh, connecting with what uh, Amy is saying. You know, what we talked about when I was assistant secretary, and Amy will remember this, I mean, from the standpoint of energy security, uh, energy security is right up there with national security now. So I think the decisions, the, the direction you go is key, but trying to harness more clean and safer energy technologies is critical. And as Amy mentioned, one of the things uh, from the standpoint of the U.S. uh, that we have been trying to do is supply from the standpoint of liquefied natural gas, LNG, and and get that, get more tankers going to Europe and uh, the places where, where it's needed. But, you know, once again, that growth, all of that takes time as well. And that's contractual. That also takes uh, decision making. But, you know, getting that there and getting that there in time is one of the issues. So as you've been saying, a lot of these measures that Europe is adopting to respond, if it's building a new nuclear power plant or arranging for more supplies of liquefied natural gas to come in from the US or other countries around the world or investing more in, in renewables and developing renewable energy, a lot of those things take time. And it's going to be hard to make a huge difference to this coming winter. You can do a lot given a decade or more, but not a lot you can do within the space of a few months. One of the things I hear people say, and I'm interested to get your uh, both of your thoughts on this, really. One of the things I hear people say is that basically this shows, the situation we're in at the moment shows a fundamental failure of European energy policy, that Europe was much too complacent about relying on Russian gas, European politicians, policymakers, regulators didn't see the dangers inherent in that. And the decisions that they should have been taking 10 years ago in terms of developing the nuclear, developing the renewable energy, developing the alternative sources of gas, they didn't take those decisions. And that's why we're in the situation we're in at the moment. Do you think that's fair? Can we really blame European politicians for what happened? Yeah, I don't know if we want to play the the blame game, but I think the the one thing that I mentioned, and I'm sure Amy will talk about it too, from the standpoint of just harnessing your own domestic resources and thinking about energy security. We kind of put that phrase aside for several years. We talked about it a great deal after September 11th, but to the extent that you need to think of energy security and also, you know, partnering. Uh, a lot of what I see now, a lot of what's needed in the geopolitical response is talking to your your neighbors, your allies, other individuals who can be who can come in and be of, of value here. But you know this crisis. I think that the depth and complexity of this crisis is what's maybe catching us off guard a little bit. So our response to it is important. Um, we there's certain things you can do in the short term, and certain things you have to do in the, the longer term, and it takes time to scale up to all of that. But I think we have more options now, uh, technological options and other options in which to think about from the standpoint of energy policy and the energy transition. I'm not, not sure if Amy would agree with that or not or her thoughts. Well, let me weigh in. I mean, one of the big things that's being talked about in Europe today, which eventually is going to be talked about here, at least in the northern states, is getting a deployment of more heat pumps. So they're electrified in Germany where you have solar panels or other places where you have solar uh, and and rising renewables, having heat pumps, uh, not only as a climate solution, but it gets you away from dependence on natural gas. Um, But of course, we're using natural gas to generate uh, a certain amount of electricity. And, you know, you have this sort of short-term, long-term problem, right? So in the short term, honestly, the most effective thing is getting energy efficiency in the door, whether that's you know turning down the thermostats in public buildings or using digital technologies, getting a smart thermostat or getting, um, getting industry to improve uh, the efficiency of its equipment, um, thinking logically about 
you know, if you think about the COVID-19 pandemic taught us a lot about what goods have to be shipped and get there the next day and what goods could take a week and it wouldn't matter. Um, so I think that probably there hasn't been enough attention paid to how to eliminate energy in general, whether that's natural gas or diesel or, or other kinds of demand that you could push away by not having to have everything be so instantaneous, shifting, you know, data center loads from one place to another to get, you know, sort of uh, the disparities, to help with the disparities in electricity load. So I think if the, there are things that can be done, and I, I commend uh, the uh, European Commission for at least focusing on the fact that if they can lower demand right now, you could be, put more natural gas away in storage to cope with the winter, and that's helpful. Big problem has been, which we all know, with soaring temperatures, um, you need more electricity and more natural gas for electricity for air conditioning. Um, and that we're having that problem also in the United States. So, you know, policymakers, I think, have to be a lot more flexible in thinking about how are we really going to cope with the climate crisis from the demand side of making sure we have reliable energy and we know what those sources of energy is going to be. Yeah, absolutely. And as, as you say, in the short term, it is very much those kind of demand side measures and really just looking at improving energy efficiency. Those are going to be absolutely crucial to keeping supply and demand roughly in balance in balance is as far as is possible and hopefully mitigating some of the, the worst effects of tight supplies. I was just looking at the uh, the European Commission plan. Some people may remember uh, Jimmy Carter. Do you remember there was that famous address Jimmy Carter gave to the American people, I think February 1977, where he said, actually uh, looked up the quote, simply by keeping our thermostats, for instance, 65 degrees in the daytime and 55 degrees at night, we could save half the current shortage of natural gas. He said, there's no way that I or anyone else in the government can solve our energy problems if you are not willing to help. And we're very much getting a, a kind of echo of that, I think, in what we're hearing from European politicians now. It's been interesting. I've noted that um, there are some German politicians that say they've been going without showers and baths in order to uh, save energy there. There's people talking about if you've got a heated swimming pool, you know, turn down the temperature, don't heat it so much. In Spain, they had a figure for air conditioning, as you say, because we've got this terrible paradox that hot weather at the moment means burning gas for electricity in the summertime to run air conditioning that might then be needed in the winter to keep people warm. I think from memory, the number was that air conditioning in Spanish office buildings was not supposed to take the temperature down below about uh, 27 degrees centigrade. That's about 80 degrees Fahrenheit. So, I mean, certainly anyone who is an American or has been to America knows the kind of temperatures that Americans like to uh, chill their office buildings and uh, other places down to down to kind of something uh, you know temperature in the sixties with the air conditioning uh, leaving it at eighty. That's uh, that's really quite a shock in terms of uh, what they're expecting of people. So all that I do think is very interesting, and certainly that's going to be I think the thing people are going to push on a lot. And one thing, though, going back to that point about Jimmy Carter, it was clear that that was politically kind of disastrous for Jimmy Carter is one of the things I think that very much contributed to that since that he didn't know what he was doing as a president. As I say, he gave that statement. I think he kind of appeared on TV wearing a cardigan, kind of just giving people the idea that you should put a sweater on instead of heating your home. And Americans certainly reacted, I think, very badly to that. Do you think it's going to have that same kind of effect in Europe? Or do you think, I mean, is there a sense that people are kind of recognizing that everyone has a role to play here that there is a need for people essentially to make some sacrifices, in at least in terms of comfort, in terms of their lifestyles, in order to save energy and to prevent a more serious crisis. Do you think that's going to work? We're now much more aware, perhaps, than we were uh, at Jimmy Carter's time about the inequality of access to energy and, and affordable energy. And I think that politicians are more aware of that. And so you've seen some you know, financial aid in different countries being given to people to help them pay uh, for their fuel bills. I think we'll probably see more of that. I do think people respond differently in times of war to, you know, sort of energy shortages than maybe the way 
people responded angrily just more recently here in the United States when the colonial pipeline was hacked. People seemed a little intolerant of the fact that they had to wait for gasoline for a little while. But I think in wartime, people have different attitudes. And, and even with our social media society and everybody having different voices, I think the crisis in Europe is a very serious one. And I think that Americans, in the end, have been willing to pay more for energy so that some of it could be exported to Europe. And I do think that in Europe, people will step up to the plate and think more differently about making sure they don't waste energy and they're just, uh, you know, sort of using what makes sense. And probably, unfortunately, the industrial sector in Europe is going to be asked um, to think about how to turn down uh, its use in a strategic way. And we've had that in the past in, in the uh, U.S. West Coast. Um, so I think we'll probably see some of that in Europe. Yeah, I'm sure that's right. And as you say, that's clearly going to have very serious implications for the economies of Europe and employment and GDP growth and everything. That's um, a very worrying outlook for that. But as as um, Vicky was saying earlier, to go back to, to a point you made, as you say, it's not just a kind of not just an energy issue. It's not just a strategic issue or a political, an economic issue. It's a humanitarian issue that there are people who will die in Europe this coming winter if they can't get the energy they need to heat their homes. One of the things I've been really struck by in the UK, I don't know if you've uh, seen this website, moneysavingexpert.com. There's a guy called um, Martin Lewis, a journalist who runs this website, general sort of personal finance advice um, site. But one of the things he's been um, really emphasizing a lot in recent months is the burden of energy bills and just how extreme it is for so many people in in the United Kingdom in particular. Um, there's a long article on that site which talks about how to keep warm in cold weather while saving money on energy bills. And they review different gadgets, electric hand warmers, hot water bottles, etc. Talk about layers of warm clothing that people can wear and so on. And there's a quote from this journalist Martin Lewis who says on the site. Uh, this is a guide I really wish we needn't be publishing, but I have an overflowing email bag of desperation from people who can't afford their energy bills. And I thought that's a very powerful comment and really kind of brings, I think it's a really powerful comment and really brought it home to me. And I think hopefully we'll bring it home to everyone um, just what a, a serious situation this is. I think that's a good point to make, uh, Ed, from the standpoint of, you know, Everyone should have access to, to clean, reliable, affordable energy. Uh, and uh, to, to see that being difficult, see that be disruptive, it's hard to say what are the best solutions going forward to the extent that commercial, industrial and commercial entities can reduce uh, their usage. Uh, that will be helpful to the extent that that individual homeowners and individuals who are just trying to stay warm, but you, you have a population of elderly and others, maybe, maybe even a homeless population. I'm, I, I just don't know, but uh, there'll be the leadership, obviously governments, government leaders who will be important over the winter months as, as we come closer and closer to those. Yeah, no, I, th I think that's absolutely right. As you say, I definitely think the role of, of governments is going to be crucial. I also wanted to think a bit about the longer term. So at the same time, we have all these problems of energy availability, affordability, reliability. We've also been suffering through this massive heat wave, which has been a reminder that the world is warming. And if we allow it to go on warming, then these problems are going to carry on getting worse. Europe, of course, have been one of the global leaders in terms of pushing to decarbonize its energy system. Certainly, its ambitions for reducing emissions were in the forefront of, of any country economy in the world. But obviously, what's happening now has been a blow to that. We're seeing some uh, return to coal for power generation. We're seeing um, European countries committing to building new facilities to use natural gas, certainly new facilities to import liquefied natural gas. So the, uh, so the issues we're seeing now in terms of inadequate supplies of fossil fuels, Europe is scrambling to rectify that by strengthening supplies of fossil fuels, 
but with then obviously potentially uh, negative implications for the climate in the longer term. Maybe maybe get your thoughts first on this. Is there a danger that Europe is making its longer term problems with climate worse, that is sort of abandoning its global leadership on decarbonisation and cutting emissions because of the measures it's taking right now to address the short-term issues of inadequate fuel supplies? Well, let's just hope that this return to coal is very short-lived, just a few months, and that the sort of longer-term picture is different. Uh, I would argue, I mean, I have the statistics, you know, the latest policy out of the European Union countries is targeting renewable energy to reach 63% of all electricity generation by 2030. Uh, That's much higher than their previous target, which was 55% uh, by that year. And, and, And I do think, you know, here in the United States, this question about are we gonna have tax incentives for heat pumps is being argued in many different states. But in Europe now, the transition to heat pumps, you know, train has left that station. And you do see some a movement on things that were very important. So for example, in Germany, there was this ridiculous thing where they have all this offshore deep water wind, um, but they, they couldn't green light a transmission line from Northern Germany to Southern Germany where there was high demand because people didn't want the wire in their backyard. Now all of a sudden, you know, Germans all in for uh, developing as fast as possible offshore wind. And, you know, I try to remind industry and listeners at the same time, you know, developing offshore wind is a couple year time horizon and takes a lot of steel. And, you know, people from the oil and gas industry like to point that out, but, you know, an LNG receiving terminal is that same couple of years and that same high amount of steel. So I do think that Europe is absolutely fast tracking more and more renewables. Uh, you know, you have this potential, at least in the southern part of the of the continent, where you're going to have more solar and battery storage. Those kind of facilities can go in really quickly. Like sometimes, you know, if you had the panels, you can do it in a matter of days and then stick a battery in like they did in Australia and other places. So I think that in the end, we're going to have this really ugly winter, and that's going to actually convince people that they want to be in control of their own destiny and being in control of my own destiny when it comes to electricity is do i have something on my house is there something in my town i don't like the idea of having to rely on you know uh, energy from some faraway place or even in the case of europe some neighboring place that might be hostile so i think it's going to help the energy transition in the end i really do and i know it feels differently now Uh, But there's a lot of technology to throw at this problem, whether it's smart thermostat or AI and energy efficiency for equipment and for for trucking and shipment and logistics. There's a lot of things that can be done that I think people will have the incentive to do, given the fact that the crisis is ongoing. Yes, um, I think right now, as Amy said, in a time of war, you have to make some different decisions. Unfortunately, you, you do. You're, you're, you're forced to make different decisions because the immediate impact of the crisis around you, you have to react to that. But I don't think this puts them behind from the standpoint of, of the direction they were going, from the standpoint of the energy transition. I guess in my mind, you know, investing in innovation, investing in every carbon-free source at our disposal especially now, is, is critical as, as we go forward. I mean, you have, you, you, right now we're, we're focused, focused like a laser on what is happening during this crisis, but we will come out of it, uh, maybe for a protracted time, but we will come out of that. And I think what we will appreciate even more is, as I said, invest in each areas, each source, each country's energy security and returning to coal for a short period of time, that's a necessity, possibly. That's a choice maybe you don't want to make, but maybe it's a necessity. But as we move forward and we look at technologies such as nuclear energy, I think there are other, other entities, other countries are looking more at nuclear energy because we do want to continue to decarbonize. If nothing else, this, this summer, the climate, the harsh winters, the extreme weather conditions 
tell you that we need to react. We need to have a response for what's going on uh, in the universe around us and uh, lessening our, our output, our heat output, lessening our admissions. I do believe that, that people see the science in that and, and appreciate that and respect that because we've seen so much extreme wildfires and other weather uh, events. I don't think this, this uh, puts us, this is a, a step off. I don't think this is putting us, you know, we're, we're saying we're not gonna keep moving in that direction. It's just that right now we have to make some different decisions. Yeah, that is really interesting. You mentioned nuclear power, which is one of the things I was particularly keen to discuss in this context, in part because we had a, a listener comment on nuclear power. It's a comment from someone called Ryan Pickering, who I think is a public speaker who's sort of an advocate for nuclear power, the nuclear industry. And this comment, here we go, I'll just read this to you. It says... While touting renewables, Energy Gang systematically ignores nuclear energy. On the few episodes that discuss nuclear in the past five years, the technology is always dismissed as too expensive or for too far away. As the energy crisis will reveal, wind, solar, storage are by far the most expensive energy system, while making our grid less reliable and failing to move us off fossil fuels in a meaningful way. German energy policy is a warning. Will we heed it? I don't agree with all of that. I think not everything he says is right. But uh, I do think he makes a good point to say, well, for a start, I think he's absolutely right to identify that Germany's uh, decision to move away from nuclear power has been deeply misguided. And I think, as we've been saying, really interesting to see that Germany is now reconsidering that decision as it pertains to the last few nuclear power plants that they've got running and does now look like there's a good chance that their lives will be extended and they will be kept running for a few more years longer at least. And I also think this comment puts his finger on an issue where I think I've changed my mind a little bit, which is I used to be sort of agnostic in general terms on nuclear, but broadly opposed to it on grounds of cost in terms of the enormous cost of building new nuclear power plants and the fact that every new nuclear power plant that someone is trying to build in the United States or in Europe over the past 20 years has gone way uh, behind schedule and way over budget. And that seemed to be something that really kind of made it very, very difficult to proceed with investment in new nuclear. I think perhaps what we're learning now in this crisis is that the cost of not building new nuclear plants is also huge, perhaps even greater than the cost of building them. Because if you rely on imported gas, if you rely on gas from Russia, the costs when that gets disrupted can be enormous as well. And I think that's something that is really being brought home to us right now. So I'm interested in your thoughts on new nuclear. I mean, Vicky, this is something I know you've you've studied in a lot of detail. You were appointed to the Blue Ribbon Commission for America's Nuclear Future. It was 10 years ago. That was under President Barack Obama. That commission called for a new strategy for managing nuclear waste. It said it was important not to close off the possibility of using nuclear power as a low-carbon energy source in the future and not closing off the possibility of building new nuclear plants. Ten years on from that commission, how do you see the role of nuclear power now? Do you think countries should be investing in new nuclear plants? Has your sense of the role of nuclear changed? Or well, how do you see it? And I brought it up for the very reason that uh, the principles of nuclear energy and what nuclear energy can provide for us at, at this time, uh, you know, 24-7, the, the, the fundamentals of nuclear energy are something that, to me, can be used and should be considered and should be part of the portfolio of a diversified fuel source and fuel mix. And that, that's just uh, a belief that, that, that I have. Now, I bring it up because it is a controversial issue. Uh, it, it's, it's not without its concerns. I think from the standpoint that you have to, to say these are you know, valid concerns that people have, these have to be addressed. And the best way to address it is to bet on technology, bet on innovation. The fact that we're, we're, we're looking at technologies, advanced reactors, we're looking at SMR, we're looking at other technologies but the important thing here is to remember that the, the best way to have a, a nuclear future is to operate the current fleet safely and in a responsible way. And that, that is usually one of, 
of my concerns as well. And then the issue of waste, the the spent fuel, however you may, may look at it, at the end of the cycle is something that has been with us for many, many years. But to the extent that each administration I know here in the U.S. tries to put their fingerprint on the energy issues, I believe in, in this administration, in that $1. trillion infrastructure package, I believe, and Amy probably has studied it more than I, but uh, it includes major investment in nuclear power. And to me, that's exciting to me. And also states are beginning to play a pivotal role. And I, I know you're asking me about Europe. Europe is, you know, France, others, they're, they're doing, they're getting back into it, other areas. But here in the states, they're playing a very pivotal role from the standpoint of, you know, we got the vocal plant in Georgia is something that will eventually come online as well. And that will be, from the standpoint, we haven't had a new reactor in what, 30 plus years or so, Amy, I, I can't, can't remember the timing, but looking forward to that being done. Developments in Tennessee with TVA, uh, they announced a program to explore light water uh, designs. You had communities in Wyoming competing to host uh, the first reactor in the state. The governor in California is looking at reevaluating the future of uh, Diablo Canyon. States like Illinois, uh, legislature moving to keep their nuclear plants right. So different things are happening as we understand nuclear, as we understand the principles and the value to this whole effort to decarbonize and how important nuclear facilities can be to that effort. So, You know, I think there is this concept out there, uh, still in the sort of concept stage um, of, can we move in small modular reactors, both to lower costs, but also to improve safety and eliminate waste. So there is a company that DOE funded, it's called Elysium, and they have this possible design where you can run the reactor on the actual spent nuclear fuel waste, and somehow denature is the word, the weapons grade plutonium, so it can become unsuitable, unusable for a nuclear bomb. And they use molten salts instead of water in the reactor core, so that's safer at higher temperature, and someday it could eliminate this challenge we have where we have the spent rods, the spent fuel rods sitting in water uh, in, you know, dozens of locations around the United States and also in Europe. Um, so, so those kinds of new designs uh, hold some promise. I think there's been sort of mixed reaction in the scientific community to Bill Gates's TerraPower's sodium-cooled reactor. But same thing, we're, you know, trying to move away um, from water. One of the uh, criticisms of the uh, uh, TerraPower design is that maybe it's going to have um, more uh, highly enriched uranium would be used. And ironically, originally they were planning to run that plant on uranium from Russia. So a big problem there, I'm assuming they're going to have some other alternative source. But, but I, I do think that uh, the concerns are well-founded um, when we consider that Russia's army has taken over two of the nuclear plants in Ukraine today, you know, calling into question um, whether that's going to cause a safety problem or not. We can think about other parts of the world where nuclear power is going in, and we have to worry about uh, whether there could be military conflict in those places. So I do think that there are some concerns that the Russian conflict with Ukraine highlight that really raises new questions. We had a lot of questions after Chernobyl and then questions after Fukushima. And I will tell you, the most frightening experience I've had as an energy expert is I was in the World Economic Forum meetings in Davos one year post-Fukushima. And for reasons that are complex, uh, I wound up being the U.S. representative into an off-the-record private meeting on cybersecurity for nuclear plants. And I would say that that was probably the most frightening experience I've had as an energy analyst, just to have to think through and discuss with foreign governments, you know, how to keep nuclear plants safe in times of war and terrorism. So we really need to be doing, you know, double overtime in thinking about these new technologies and which ones are safest and which ones really help uh, and which ones are just too risky to use. Yeah, that is a really great point. You're opening a whole can of worms there, which 
I don't want to get into right now, but that is a fantastic subject. We should definitely come back to it on a future episode of the Energy Gang, because those issues, as you say, about security and safety in nuclear power clearly are very, very important and something that it's really important to think about, particularly if there is going to be this um, upsurge of interest in and investment in and development of new nuclear power plants. We do have to worry about all those things. But unfortunately, time is tight. And right now, I want to move on, because I want to pick up on uh, something Vicky was talking about earlier, which is the Biden administration's climate strategy and uh, following up on that uh, infrastructure bill that was passed last year that had quite a lot of climate-related measures in it. I wasn't on the last Energy Gang show. If you heard it, you'll know that uh, uh, Melissa Lott, Emily Chasen, and Robbie Orvis were on and they talked quite a lot about the Supreme Court ruling in the case of West Virginia versus EPA. And they talked about how that decision could constrain the administration's freedom to act in terms of using regulations to control greenhouse gas emissions. And what they were saying then, and um, one of the points that was made in a couple of different ways on that program was to say, well, look, at least there's still the possibility of getting legislation passed that will have the effect of accelerating the energy transition and curbing greenhouse gas emissions. Well, now it looks like there's a good chance that that possibility of legislation has also been closed off. Sure, everyone knows the background. Um, the US Senate is split 50-50 between Democrats and Republicans, and that means individual senators can have a great deal of influence. And in particular, Joe Manchin, who is the Democratic senator from West Virginia, has the power to make or break legislation. And earlier this month, Senator Manchin said he would not, for the time being, support any legislation that included increased support, such as tax credits for low carbon energy. It wasn't quite a definitive absolute no. It was a somewhat uh, complicated and nuanced statement. I think there was a suggestion that the door could maybe perhaps be open for him to uh, support some kind of legislation in the future. But certainly he's saying for now he's not going to back anything, in particular because he's concerned about inflation and the effect of increased support for low carbon energy helping to fuel inflation. There was uh, a massive reaction to his comments and his uh, decision not to back any new climate legislation for the moment. Um, environmental groups were outraged. There was a great sense of sort of dismay and despair about the Biden administration's climate strategy. Uh, there was a column in the New York Times last week uh, that really summed it up. I thought the headline was, uh, I feel utterly hopeless about American climate policy. And I think that definitely sums up the way uh, that a lot of people are feeling right now. So, Amy, what's your take on all this? Uh, where do you think uh, Senator Manchin's statement leaves us? Do you feel utterly hopeless about American climate policy? You know, I, I, I know that people feel that way, and I know it's a lot of your listeners and my listeners and people who follow me on Twitter, but we have to, you know, soldiers forge ahead. So let me just make the sort of optimistic point that we had the infrastructure bill and we're spending $62 billion for clean energy investments. And that might not be as high as the 90 billion that was spent in 2009 with the stimulus. Uh, and of course we know that stimulus was very successful in scaling up utility solar in the United States. Uh, and a little bit of that went to help Tesla over the hump. But there are a lot of good things that were in the infrastructure bill that are super important, like public transit and EV charging and uh, new new upgrades to the grid and demonstration hubs for hydrogen and uh, and and even you know carbon sequestration has sort of gotten some support from Congress. So I feel like there's a lot to work with. You still have state policy, which is increasingly important in the United States. And, and you know, there's the possibility of individual action. We've got the president still has some tricks up his sleeve. Um, the U.S. Innovation and Competition Act of 2021 passed a hurdle in the Senate and could go to the House, could be passed before they recess. Hard to say, but that we could stick some climate stuff in there and not just semiconductors. Um, but, you know, the president can also you know, look at manufacturing uh, for critical industry um, going forward on some kind of a other kind of emergency declaration. He's very committed to 
uh, supply chains and good supply chains for renewable energy and for electric cars. And um, I, I think there's just a lot that can be done. And there is, I can tell you as a person who recently bought an electric car, there is a huge pent up demand now in the United States. People are, the switch is flicked for a lot of people. I have people coming up to me in the grocery store. The head of my local fish market wanted a demonstration of my car just the other day. There, there's a lot of interest. We don't have carbon pricing, which is really the most important thing. And that doesn't look like it's coming out uh, with this particular Congress. But I still think there's a lot the president can do. And I do think there's a lot that can be done at the state level. Vicky, what do you think? Do you share Amy's optimism? Totally. Uh, there's not much I, I can add to that. States will look at their own integrated resource plans and they will ask their utilities and when they come in to present what their plans are from the standpoint of uh, emission reductions, what their plans are to integrate uh, renewables and, I mean, just every, everything Amy has talked about. So we're already a long way. The companies, you, you've heard, you know, from the standpoint of commitments as it relates to, to net zero and zero emissions, however the, the individual company may commit to. The ball is already rolling that way. It's already moving that way. Electrification, moving towards electrifying our cars. Our, the car industry, they're changing their whole manufacturing model. So I, I just think it's very positive. Yeah, and let, let, me, let me add something. You know, when we start to get towards the presidential election cycle, you can already see some sort of stumping. You know, you've got Ron DeSantis attacking, you know, uh, the Disney uh, but you also have, in recent weeks, Gavin Newsom of California really stepping up to the political plate, trying to get himself on TV with big statements. Um, and, and his energy policy has been you know, somewhat controversial, but brings everything to the fore. So one of the things that California is doing, which is super interesting, is creating a, or they're trying to create an emergency strategic energy reserve. When you contrast those kind of policies that are sort of tapping technology to make sure that Californians don't experience what people are experiencing in Texas, you know, that brings the whole thing up to the national debate. And some of these technologies that are coming forward are very enabling. And so I think, you know, the President Biden and his team might get a second bite at the apple in the Congress if they would just come in with a specific thing like, We'd like to have a bill for tax incentives for hydrogen, or we'd like to have a bill for tax incentives for, you know, technology B, right? Uh, I think they might be able to get some momentum just breaking out little tiny things and, and doing it a little piece, a little piece at a time uh, once they get through the appropriations bill, which is the priority right now. But I do want to mention one thing because I think we'd be remiss if we're talking about the U.S. without making this point. The 2021 U.S. Census Household Pulse Survey found that over 20% of American adults are unable to bill an energy bill within the past year. And so whatever policies we push forward, whether, you know, now that we're not talking Build Back Better, and so therefore we're not talking about justice and equity, you know, everything can't be about giving a tax break to wealthy people to do some cool new technology or to corporations to do some cool new technology. We also have to think about how we're going to improve services uh, to lower income Americans. And, and I, I do think that, you know, having Newsom talk about uh, his different ideas for keeping the lights on in California and having a strategic electricity reserve is so the kind of out-of-box thinking we need, you know, on top of, you know, more low-income energy assistance, which was in the infrastructure bill. So hopefully that will help out. Yeah, that is very interesting. So Vicky, something I was particularly keen to get your view on was sort of just to kind of stand back a little bit and look at a, a bit of a longer-term perspective. So you've had an interestingly sort of bipartisan career. You were appointed energy regulator by President Bill Clinton. You served in the administration, President George W. Bush. You were then an advisor to uh, President Barack Obama. What's your sense of U.S. energy policy in that longer-term perspective, going back over the past kind of 30 years or so? Uh, do you think U.S. energy policy has generally been successful over that period, or 
what do you think it needs to be successful in the future? It, it, it's a provocative question, Ed. I, I will say when I first entered the, the energy industry space as, as a commissioner in Indiana, you know, we were making policy probably from a, a position of scarcity. We were looking at, you know, imports of, of natural gas, other, other things, other domestic sources, what we could do here in, in the U.S. and how we could, could um, you know, we, we, whether we want to think of it as, or not, we're not really independent. We're interdependent. We're inextricably linked to the rest of the world. But I would say from the standpoint of where we are now, we can make policy from a standpoint of abundance. We have unlocked geological reserves. We have done things with, and, and I know what I'm saying may be, you know, repulsive or controversial to people, but I'm, I'm just saying. Repulsive is a strong word, but. Well, I don't know. <laughs> strong things in this, uh, in, in this environment. But to the extent that, you know, technology and harnessing our reserves, using what, what we have, to access energy, we are doing that now. And we're able, as this Russia-Ukraine crisis, we're able to export uh, natural gas because of the technology that enabled us to, to reach that feed gas and uh, actually supply trains and, and have put LNG on a, on a tanker, freeze it to a level where you can put it and ship it. So that's all I'm saying. I'm just saying that... Um, uh, once where we were making policy from a standpoint of scarcity, we're now doing it from a standpoint of abundance. That has the yin and yang. That has some people excited, some people not so excited. That, that might be a better way to put it. But the future is good. I mean, from the standpoint, you know, we talk about, you know, the war on poverty and other, I mean, there, there's issues here in our own country as it relates to access to energy issues and energy, you know, environmental justice issues and other issues, you know, around the world even. So, I think uh, it will always be something we grapple with, always, always something we'll be grappling with. But to the extent that we harness, uh, we, we bet on innovation, bet on technology, uh, that, that makes me very hopeful for the future. Thanks very much. That is actually great to hear. That's a really good, uh, inspiring thought, I think, to end on, because we do just about have to leave it there. We just about have to wrap up. But um, before we go, as usual, we have our free electrons. These are things perhaps that are kind of personal to us that uh, we've all brought in. Before I get to everybody else's free electron, I wanted to raise an idea that we've had. Um, Shakira Perez, who's uh, just joined our production team, she was saying the other day, why don't we get listeners to send in their free electrons, which I do think is a great idea. So this is an open invitation to everyone listening now. If you have observations, comments, anything else you want to raise as a free electron in this section of the podcast about the world of energy or perhaps not about anything, please do send them in. At the moment, I think the best way to do that is probably on Twitter. Our Twitter account is at the Energy Gang. You can tag us in or DM us on that account. We might also experiment with a hashtag. We might try hashtag free electrons, see if that works. Please do use Twitter. Uh, send us anything you'd like to raise. Now, that said, Vicky, what's your free electron? What do you got for us? All right. I'm new to this, guys, but I've been thinking a lot this week about uh, Mariposa County. I, uh, I love butterflies, and I was able to go there, I think it was 2019, to Mariposa County. It was during the festival, during the parade, but I was also there to go to uh, Yosemite um, uh, National Park and to be able to see the, the grizzly, the giant grizzly, and I think about the sequoias. I thought about it, obviously, during this past week with all the wildfires. But those sequoias, to me, represented resilience. And uh, that, that's a word I use a lot. And so from the standpoint of what, uh, from the standpoint of energy and what we're trying to do, resilience is key. So, so let's remember Mariposa County. Oh, that's a great thought. Lovely image. Thank you. Uh, Amy, what's yours? Well, you know, you mentioned Twitter. So uh, I have, you know, my little Twitter following and I had my first energy Twitter trolling experience uh, recently. <laughs> right. I went right. to a nearby charging station uh, at, near my house and there was a whole line of cars all of a sudden because it was getting to be the 4th of July weekend and we had people driving, you know, between different New England states. 
And three out of the four charger, chargers that I was waiting for were broken. Whoa. And as I was waiting, waiting, and get talking with some of the other electric car owners, this one gentleman was very irritated, and he explained to me that those three out of four charging stations had been down for 10 days. And I said to him, oh, I'm going to tweet about it and see if I can get us a solution. <laughs> um, so I did. I, I took a picture of the charging station. I tweeted about uh, it, the problem and how terrible it was that this company had not done anything ahead of the 4th of July weekend. And what interested me is that company then got trolled and somebody raised the possibility that maybe there should be some kind of regulations about how long you can leave an electric charging station unrepaired. So interesting idea, because when you think about it, as people are planning their travel with their EVs, the maintenance of facilities are going to matter more and more over time. And so anyway, I thought it was sort of an interesting Twitter experience. Yeah, that is a great point, actually. As you say, they're critical infrastructure. We need to make sure that those charging points are working. And perhaps that means regulation. Yeah, that's no, great. So uh, my free electron is about my weekend. I'm going to, um, this is obviously, this is great um, for an audio medium. I'm just showing you my wrist here on the video. I'm still in a slightly annoying way wearing the wristband from the festival I attended over the weekend, an extremely uh, uncool festival called Latitude in Suffolk in uh, uh, Eastern England. Good fun. Um, who did I see? Phoebe Bridges um, was one of the highlights. Manic Street Peaches, who I've never been a huge fan of, but they were very good, did a great set. Uh, lots of tunes, it turned out, but I knew. My point being, there was a lot of discussion at this event about climate. It clearly kind of pitching itself, obviously. Um, a lot of young people attending, a lot of people who are interested in climate as an issue. Um, there was a stand there. Uh, with, with the picture was, um, I took a picture of it, Just Stop Oil. Here we go. Um, and that was campaign that was saying, you know, we should stop uh, exploring, developing new sources of oil. They talked a lot about the carbon footprint of the event. For instance, when you bought your pizza, you could see there was a kind of a, a different score, what they called the carbon food print. So it was kind of saying um, there are some pizzas you could buy that had a really high carbon footprint and some had a medium and some had a low. And you could, I mean, essentially, as you would expect, the kind of the more um, vegetable-based ones, vegetarian ones would have a lower carbon footprint and so on. So you could kind of make your food choices on that basis. Okay, fantastic. All very interesting and, and kind of interesting exercises in consciousness raising about climate as an issue. Fine. Of course, as soon as you go around any corner, there is massive diesel generators everywhere and huge kind of rows of diesel generators lined up. All the lighting, all the sound, everything, the entire festival is being run on diesel generators. Um, there are little kind of carts carrying people around, which you can hear have clearly got gasoline engines in them. Um, there is a colossal car park absolutely full of all the cars that people have driven there and so on. And the idea of this being, in any sense, a festival that is not dependent on oil is kind of crazy. I mean, I'm not particularly kind of mentioning this to highlight the hypocrisy because there are worse crimes than hypocrisy. And in a sense, having good intentions but failing to live up to them is kind of... Um, is better than not having any good intentions at all. However, it clearly just absolutely underlines that point again and again, which we talk about again and again, about just how dependent we are on fossil fuels in everything we do and the challenges that are involved in, in shifting that. And it made me think about a very interesting plan, which I would commend to everyone. It's well worth a look at the Tyndall Center at Manchester University, published a report last year essentially on decarbonizing the music industry. Um, there was this report put out um, in association with the band Massive Attack, um, looking at ways to get to net zero in the music business. It is absolutely doable. Um, it is complex and challenging. If you look at this plan, it can be done. But it's clear that it would require some pretty fundamental changes. For instance, uh, rock stars flying around in private jets less than they do at the moment. So I do think it's a valuable goal. It's good to be talking about it. But clearly, there is a lot more progress to be made. And some of that progress 
does mean doing things differently. It will not be the case that we can just kind of carry on with everyone living in exactly the same ways as we have been before, but in a low-carbon way. Some things are going to have to change, including rock stars not flying around in their private jets anymore. So uh, I thought that was very interesting, and it's going to be interesting to follow this festival and others over the years to come to see if they are actually making progress on that agenda towards decarbonisation. So we do unfortunately have to leave it there. That is all from the Energy Gang for this week. Thank you very much indeed, Amy. Thanks, Ed. It's been great to have a discussion with you and Vicky. Yeah, absolutely. And thank you very much indeed, Vicky, for joining us for the first time. I hope we can have you back again soon. Thank you so much. Enjoyed it. And many thanks to all of you for listening. Please do let us know what you think. Give us your comments, suggestions, ideas for subjects we ought to be covering. Um, as I was saying earlier, we're on Twitter at, at the Energy Gang. I'm at Ed underscore Crooks. And we will be back in a couple of weeks with all the latest news and views on what's next for the energy transition. Until then, goodbye.